Hey there, land investors. Have you been looking for a way to turn your money faster? Well, now there's a way to sell your land notes faster than ever before. You can get access to thousands of note investors who are actively searching for quality land notes at paperstack.com. That's paperstack, but without the K at the end. If you've got any outstanding land notes with interest rates over 8% and at least three months of seasoning, you're going to get some bids and you don't have to take my word for it. Josh Brooks is a member of the RE Tipster Club and a fellow land investor, and he sold six land notes on Paperstack. The closing process was really easy, and he had multiple bids. If you're looking to sell your land notes for a decent price, check out Paperstack.com. And if you've never sold a note before and you're not sure about how the process works, no problem. This is new territory for a lot of people. Paperstack will walk you through every step of the closing, making sure you don't miss a critical step in your sales process. All the documents are generated by the software and it's free to list, so you've really got nothing to lose. Recapitalize faster with paperstack.com. That's P-A-P-E-R-S-T-A-C.com. Hey everybody, how's it going? Seth Williams here and Jaron Barnes, and you're listening to the RE Tipster Podcast. Today, we're talking with Paul Moore. So I first heard about Paul and saw his stuff, uh, just some YouTube videos he had put together uh, for Bigger Pockets years ago. He's always kind of just stood out as like an authoritative guy who knows a lot of stuff. Just a little bit of background about Paul. So he began his career at Ford Motor Company after earning an MBA from Ohio State. And after five years of working at Ford, Paul started a staffing company with a partner and Paul and his partner sold it to a publicly traded firm five years later for $2.9 million. And along the way, Paul was a finalist for Ernst & Young's Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two years straight. Paul later got into the real estate sector where he flipped over 50 homes and 25 high-end waterfront lots. He appeared on HGTV's House Hunters. He has rehabbed and managed rental properties, built a number of new homes, developed a subdivision, and started two successful online real estate marketing firms. And after helping with three successful developments, including assisting with the development of a Hyatt Hotel and a very successful multifamily project, Paul ventured into the commercial multifamily arena. And with decades of experience and an impressive resume, Paul offers a fresh perspective on creative real estate investing and philanthropy in 2021. Paul is also an experienced podcast guest, having appeared on over 60 shows and counting. And uh, we're just really glad to have him here. So, Paul, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. I know we kind of just covered a lot there in that intro, but uh, it almost makes me wonder just right off the bat, with all the stuff you've done since, was it like in the mid-90s when you got into real estate? Was that your first foray into real estate? I invested in commercial real estate passively in 1999, but I really started full-time into real estate uh, in tw uh, the year 2000. So with all of the stuff you've seen, all the different market changes, times when real estate has been in the tank and other times when real estate has been really hot, kind of like right now, what would you say are some of the lessons you've learned? Like anything super important stand out about how to handle yourself when the market is constantly changing and the rules are different from year to year? 
Yeah, one thing that stands out it came from my bio, and that is I got tired and kind of bored listening to you read it. Uh, I actually <laughs> used to think, you know, I remember years ago, I've got this drawer in my desk where I keep all my business cards. And I've got business cards. I unfortunately don't have one from the staffing company, but from over a dozen different things I've done since then, I thought, I'm going to put a serial entrepreneur on the card, you know, and that'll be really... <laughs> And another time I thought I'm going to put full-time investor on the, and you know what? Being a serial entrepreneur is not cool. And I'm sorry if I'm offending you guys or anybody else. It can be. Elon Musk has done it really well, but he hasn't actually done marriage and parenting as well from what I've heard. And I'm at risk, as I told you before the show, of the same thing, because when you're always chasing two rabbits, as Gary Keller quotes in The One Thing, you'll probably catch neither one. And I chased shiny objects for years, and I would be down the road with a startup and see a new opportunity and go turn my attention to that. And Barry, my business partner, who actually uh, was in Indiana for many years, and Michigan. And I know you guys both are from both those places. But Barry said once he ran for governor of Colorado a few years ago, he said, you know, I rub shoulders with some billionaires and really successful people recently. He said the most successful people took Gary Keller's advice and stayed on one thing for decades. And they became very, very good at it. And it might have even been boring or looked boring, but boring is cool. In fact, I am thinking about writing a book called The Boring Investor. I've got 21 chapters outlined for it. And uh, I started it on a plane recently when this burst of inspiration. If you look at Warren Buffett's life, guys, we couldn't handle a week of his life. It's so boring, seemingly. But Paul Samuelson, you know, the first U.S. economist to win the Nobel Peace Prize said, investing should be boring. It should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. Yeah, I just recently watched a interview with Ramit Sethi, or Sethi, however you pronounce his last name. And he was uh, saying the same thing. It was He was being interviewed by Tom Bilyeu on impact theory, and he was asking him about finances and Bitcoin and all these hot items, as it were. And he said the same thing. He said, you know, the reality is if the majority of the time, large hedge fund companies and all these big wigs on Wall Street don't actually end up beating the market. Like statistically, you would be better off just parking your money in um, like an EFT or, or um, mutual fund that just like matches the market. He says the exact same thing that your finances should be kind of boring because they're supposed to give you the resources to go live an amazing life. They themselves are not supposed to be the end all be all. Right. It's so true. Yeah. I don't mean to take this off course, but I just put together a blog post. I actually did it several months ago, but it just got published last week. It's all about the fast and slow roadmap for real estate investors. And it was based on this thing that I heard a really smart person tell me a few years ago, where he told me that you make your money in your business and you preserve your money in the market, not the other way around. Oh, I love that. Yeah. If you kind of equate that to real estate, it's like, if you want to get there quickly, investing in passive buy and hold investments and that kind of thing, that's not the fast way to get there. Like that is the boring way. So, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I mean, as this 
high energy serial entrepreneur that became a full time investor. And at age 34, when I sold my company, guys, I blew it. I blew it. I wanted to keep investing like I entrepreneured. I just made that word up. But anyway, um, <laughs> the point is, I, 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 try, I guess I became an entrepreneurial investor and it was a big mistake and I lost a lot of money doing it. I mean, I've got a podcast called How to Lose Money after all. <laughs> Maybe you can explain what you mean by that. Like, what exactly did you do wrong? Were you trying to flip properties fast or something or let's pick that apart? Yeah. So, I mean, I just chase things with little due diligence. I just, I heard about, you know, a guy who was doing foreign exchange investing and he was able to make a 3% profit a month and he would keep a percent and give 2% to his investors. And you know what? I did due diligence, but not much. I just trusted what another guy told me about him. I invested a hundred thousand. I actually went to see him in Charlotte to take him another hundred thousand. And I got this sinking gut feeling that something was very wrong. And so rather than do what I should have and pulled the hundred thousand out, I, at least I didn't put another hundred thousand with him because a few weeks later, the FBI raided him and he's now in year, I think like 20 of his 158 year prison term. And, uh, it was a Ponzi scheme and uh, he still won't tell people where he's kept the $18 million that he stole from two to 4,000 people. I'm not clear how many, but, um, I just didn't do enough due diligence and, you know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a big return. And either one's okay. I mean, it's okay to speculate in Google if you're the Stanford professor, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. Or it's okay to speculate in Amazon if you're Jeff Bezos' parents 27 years ago who, you know, turned 300,000 into, you know, 30 billion or whatever. But let's face it, there's a lot of other people who speculate and are now driving pizza for Domino's. And so the sure path to wealth is slow and boring. Jeff Bezos asked Warren Buffett, why why doesn't everybody just imitate you? It's not that complicated. Buffett said, people don't want to get rich that slowly. Yeah. Hey, Paul, I want to go back to a point of conversation we were having a minute ago, um, because you said something really interesting to me. You were talking about how you as an entrepreneur for years got the shiny object syndrome and you would be pursuing all these different opportunities that presented themselves. One of the things that I struggle with a lot is the fear that If I give my yes to something, I inherently have to give my no to a bunch of other things. Like you even said earlier that the guys that are billionaires, your, your partner Barry was, you know, rubbing shoulders with billionaires and, and they just stuck to one thing and, and made it work. The thing that I really struggle with is I always doubt if I am actually doing the right one thing, right? Because like that is the million dollar question. Like if I give my life to building said adventure and it's not good soil, it's not a good place to sow, then I could legitimately ruin my entire life and waste my entire life and waste all my potential. So do you have any insight or any wisdom that you could speak to in that kind of predicament? Because I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs struggle. Like 
without me kind of catching the shiny object syndrome and doing a deep dive for a couple months in apartment syndications, I would never learn whether or not it's for me or not, you know? Yeah, it's so true. And I don't have a great answer. I remember Gary Keller in the book, The One Thing said, you know, your to say yes to your one thing means saying no to a thousand distractions. And I would say more like 10,000 distractions along the way. Uh, and that can be on an hourly basis, a monthly basis, a lifetime basis. And it is hard. And wouldn't it be terrible to get to the end of your life and realize that you were acting in a play, so to speak, but you didn't know the plot? That's why I love to step back from my business. And in fact, I like to step back every morning when I get up and take some time to journal, to pray, to meditate, and to really, you know, remind myself of the plot of my life. It's interesting, Jaron. Like I said, we've had a show called How to Lose Money for four years. We had interviewed 230 some guests and we learned two, well, we learned tons of lessons, but two that stood out. One was, don't quit, persevere, like all the posters on the walls, you know, of your office. Uh, persevere, never quit, you know, the frog grabbing the pelican by the throat, you know, never give up. And the other lesson we learned that stood out was quit quickly. You got to know to turn it, cash in your chips soon. So we interviewed lots of people who told us about ways they didn't stop soon enough. And as a result, they lost a lot of money. We invested almost $400,000 in a wireless internet company in North Dakota that I co-founded after doing this super successful multifamily deal in North Dakota and the same town. And, you know, about a hundred thousand into the burn of that 400, we should have pulled the plug. We could have given investors and I was the largest investor back three quarters of their money, but instead we burned it out for about seven years and it turned into zero. And if we would have just pulled the plug on that the first winter when the radios didn't work, we would have been a lot smarter. So I think both are true. The question is, how do you know if you're on the right path that you need to keep persevering on or barking up the wrong tree, to so to, so to speak? And I think the answer partially comes from wisdom, wisdom of mentors, wisdom of counselors and coaches, but also your own wisdom that you gain over decades. And a lot of that comes from pain. And that's why we call the show How to Lose Money. We tried to give people an opportunity to learn from other people's pain. Yeah, that that's really insightful. It's just, it's really hard to to figure out, man, because it's I can be very certain on some days or even an hour of a particular day. And then like a few hours later, something can derail me. And then I'll, I'll be second guessing the decisions that I've made. Or for me, it's, I guess it's a form of FOMO. You know, it's, um, it is. I don't know when you should quit versus when you should double down, get gritty and go hard because there are, people in ditches on on both paths i know you know so i guess it's just one of those entrepreneurial conundrums it's really tough there's a guy named lance Wallnow that you might have heard of and lance Wallnow has a thing where he talks about when all your education training successes 
failures, strengths, weaknesses, the things you enjoy, the things that give you life versus the things that feel like you're going to die to have to do it. When they all come together and you just have this moment of clarity, he calls it convergence. And you can find stuff like that uh, on YouTube and on Lance Wallnow's website. But convergence is when that all comes together. And when that happens, you often can tell Oh, yeah, I'm in in the zone of convergence. Unfortunately, he says a lot of people don't come to that moment of clarity till their 50s or 60s. And so eat right, stay healthy, because <laughs> if you are like me, you know, and didn't really come to that moment of convergence till my mid 50s, you're going to have a long road ahead because, hey, man, I can never retire. Yeah, totally. So, Paul, I know just from your bio Sounds like if you got some experience with, uh, you know, investing in vacant land, since that's, you know, a big part of our audience and a lot of them are interested in that. And I'm interested in this too. What is your experience with that? Like what kind of land did you buy and invest in and what was involved with that? Yeah. So when we sold our company to um, uh, another company in Detroit in uh, when I was 33 and 34, I moved to a mountaintop in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. We tried to start a nonprofit organization our neighbor had 450 acres and he looked, well, he was very, very old. And we asked him if he wanted to sell and he said, yeah. So we actually got a, spent like six or $7,000 getting the timber evaluated without a written contract with him. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, the timber was, speculation. Huh? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So he basically said, okay, I'll sell it to you for $1,000 an acre. This is mountaintop land and that's about right. And well, the, the timber was worth $1,000 an acre, we found out, and that was in a bad market in 2000. And so we went down the road with him, but his wife caught wind of it and she shut the whole thing down. We didn't have a signed contract and, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to hold it to him anyway and cause marital strife. He was a friend of mine. So my son never forgot that. And actually about, 15, 16 years later in 2016, he started in that business full time. And actually that's what he does. He buys land that has a variety of uses. I mean, he can subdivide it. He can rent it out for hunting land. He can rent it out to a cell tower company. He can rent it out for solar. He can do carbon tax credits, though we don't know exactly how to do that yet. I know people do it. And he can also cut timber. Like he can, like he just bought a 201 acre parcel. He's going to select, cut the largest trees off and let the rest grow for 25 more years. What a great retirement plan for a 28 year old. Anyway, so that's my main involvement in land. The other would be I bought and flipped about 30 or 40 waterfront lots over the years at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. And one of them was a five acre parcel that I had to subdivide to make work. Talk about a speculation. We were counting on the market to continue to go well. Of course, everybody does that in a sense. But we were also counting on VDOT, the Virginia Department of Transportation, granting us a public road in front of the lot. No speculation there. <laughs> and uh, after two or three years of trying to hope that would happen, you know, hope's not a business strategy. And so we were not able to make that happen. That almost got me to the point of bankruptcy in 2008 but i ended up actually going from two and a half million dollars in debt to completely debt free through a series of amazing events that happened in late actually through the year of 2008 
Do you mind diving into a little bit of that? That's a major cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. So I, I told you I do this morning meditation thing, and it was a Sunday morning uh, in October or no, actually November of 2007. And I was sitting there one morning realizing, man, I'm two and a half million dollars in debt. Ten years ago to the month, I had, you know, almost two million in the bank, and now I'm two and a half million in debt. But I didn't feel scared. And it's kind of odd to me now that I didn't. I guess it's because I didn't know how bad the 2008 recession would be. Of course, nobody did. And so we're about to hurtle down this black hole called the Great Financial Crisis. And I was sitting there and I had this really strong impression like, what would George Mueller do? Well, for those of you who don't know George Mueller, which is probably most of your audience, he lived through the 1800s. And he actually was a hellion in Germany as a young man. And he went to England and he became sort of a saint, so to speak. He actually housed and cared for 10,000 orphans total over his lifetime and beyond uh, in these large orphanages he built using the model they had at the time for orphanages. He actually was able to raise what we believe was around a quarter billion dollars in today's dollars, possibly up to half a billion. And he never, ever asked for a penny from anybody or told anybody he had a need. He actually just believed if he was fully aligned with God, that God would provide him every cent he needed. And apparently he did. So I thought, what would George Mueller do? Well, he was really opinionated. Like he didn't believe in marketing and sales and all kinds of things. Okay. But he also didn't believe in debt. And I thought, well, what would George Mueller? Well, George Mueller wouldn't be in debt. But if he was, he would do something really crazy and outlandish to get out of debt. And so I actually, uh, that morning, uh, the pastor of my church talked about George Mueller. And I'd never heard him mention his name ever in like 14 years. And so I thought, okay, I'm on the right track. And so I went to my family and four young kids and my wife, and I said, hey, family, gather around. We're in a lot of trouble. We're going to start giving our way out of debt. And uh, then I met with two concerned friends, me and two others, and they told me, they said, you're going to obviously have to declare bankruptcy, right, Paul? And I said, well, it would seem, but I'm going to start giving my way out of debt. That went over really well. And so <laughs> we, on January 1st, 2008, with no idea how we'd get out of this mess, we started giving aggressively to some nonprofits, charities, et cetera, we were committed to. Four weeks later, I was in a Subway restaurant and had this random conversation, seemingly, with an experienced real estate developer who gave me an idea how to subdivide the five acres of land into five one-acre parcels, which was my goal all along. And I said, that won't work because of this law. He said, well, think about it. And like, I had this like incredible moment, like, oh, I know what to do. And I got out of the Subway restaurant, called my surveyor, explained it. He thought it was a terrible idea because he said, that law prohibits you. And I said, let's go to the county planning and zoning office anyway. So two days later, we're sitting there and he's sitting there like embarrassed while I'm <laughs> presenting this outlandish plan to use their law that prohibited subdividing to subdivide the land. And the lady <laughs> looked up at me and shook her head. She said, I've been working here for decades. No one has ever come up with such an outlandish plan but you somehow found a loophole in the law. You're right. You can do this. 
and um, still had a lot of work ahead. I mean, I had to, you know, I had surveyors and attorneys and soil scientists, and I had to find five buyers in the midst of the worst downturn since the Great Depression. But I did. It happened. And I was completely debt-free in 13 months. That's awesome. Wow. So maybe I missed it when you were talking about in terms of like giving your way out of debt. What what else was involved with that? Like, were you giving to a certain cause or something beyond that? Or No, I, I guess, you know, I really believe and, and people all around the world believe in what some people call karma. Some people call it the law of sowing and reaping. I was just giving, believing that that would actually matter. I didn't know what would happen. I thought we could have ended up broke and bankrupt. And for some reason, I didn't lose any sleep over that. I didn't think we would, but I thought we might. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, right in the middle of all that, my business partner quit. He had half the debt and he handed it to me. And if he hadn't quit, I couldn't have become debt-free because when I sold that those lots, I would have had to split the profit with him. And I told him, I'm going to figure this out. And he said, I got to quit anyway. And uh, he missed out on some profit. But anyway, that's what happened. I, I just really believe that the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, would, all aligns when we give generously and when we give of our time, when we sacrifice money. And somehow or another, things come to us that wouldn't have come otherwise. George Mueller believed that. And I tell you what, I do too. And I don't think it's a magic formula, though. I don't think I can just put a dollar in like a vending machine and get a, a soda pop out of the machine. I don't think it's a vending machine. I think it's just a principle that's generally true. Yeah. Yeah, there is a biblical basis for that and all the... Atheists and agnostic listeners out there are probably going to roll their eyes at this, but uh, Malachi 3.10, it says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. And if you do, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it and put me to the test. So God is actually like challenging you, like see if I don't come through for you. I think there is something to that. There, there have been a few times in my life, I wouldn't say like, was recklessly giving, but, you know, I intentionally gave to the point of inconvenience. Like it hurt me to do so. It never stayed a negative thing. Like, I don't know where it comes from, but somehow you end up further ahead. And I think it probably has to do with giving with a cheerful heart and that kind of thing. But yeah, there's something to that. At least that's been my experience. And I haven't heard a lot of people who have done that and it hasn't worked out for them. I know. And Seth, I'll tell you, there's actually, I, I, I shared this on a podcast a few months ago and the host said, check this out. And he showed me a study from a, I think it was a Catholic guy in New York, Syracuse, University of Syracuse, who did a study on this and proved that people who gave generously actually ended up wealthier and they actually dove in deep because it didn't make sense to him. He didn't believe the results. He dove in deeper and pulled it apart and figured out why, some reasons why it could be true. And that, for anybody who's listening, if you want to hear that, that message he gave about, it's a short message, 35 minutes. He gave it at Brigham Young University, and I want to say 2009. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's interesting how in life, the principles of success are universal and sometimes they're counterintuitive, but people from all different walks 
and all different stripes and colors and backgrounds and all of that, they all typically stumble across some version of the the financial, like the tithing principle or whatever. It's really, really interesting that even if you have no faith in God whatsoever, if you do this like kingdom principle, it works and it works across the board. It's true. You know, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, those principles work for people who have no faith at all. I will say that I think that they're probably deeper, longer lasting and work better for people who really do have faith, but uh, they do work. It's amazing how it's just like gravity. It works for everybody. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, hey, Paul, you've mentioned a couple times about meditating. And that's um, really piqued my interest. Because if I'm honest, I don't know what meditation is or like what's supposed to happen when you sit down and try to meditate. And I would love just some insight as to what your meditation practice looks like. If you have any pointers, I know that there's a lot of diversity and all of that in, you know, morning practices and, and what have you. And I've tried to do uh, like there's a, a really ancient type of Christian meditation called the Jesus prayer. And I've tried to do that. And I've tried to do like, some other things, but I don't know exactly what's supposed to be happening when I'm sitting there for 20 minutes or whatever. Can you dive into what that looks like for you and why you find it beneficial? I mean, if you're committed to doing it every day, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I'm going to show some weakness here. I don't know that I really know uh, in experiential way the best way to do it. I sort of call it meditation as a catch-all. What I do Well, I will say this. There is a form of Eastern meditation, which I've heard, though I haven't experienced it, is emptying your mind of all thoughts. And I think that the Western form or the Christian form would honestly be to fill my mind with thoughts, to set my gaze on heaven and to set my gaze. I, I mentioned earlier getting to the end of your life and not knowing, not understanding the plot of the story, you know, just reading the lines as you went and not not getting it. Well, in this way, in meditation, I'm actually reframing myself every day to remember the bigger story, to remember that I'm not here just to make money or succeed in business, that I've got kids who need me, that I've got people I'm mentoring who really need time with me. And though I'm tempted to work till midnight tonight, I really do need to stop at dinner time and do these other things. So it's reframing practically. I'll tell you that my meditation looks like this. It looks like having a the scriptures out and having a blank piece of page on a journal and just starting to write thoughts. And sometimes those random thoughts end up with some kind of brilliance that I wouldn't have come to otherwise. For me, my mind is racing so fast with business ideas almost all the time. I I would say that writing, this is my own theory. No, No one's ever told me this, but when I'm writing, I feel like the effort that my brain must use to write actually somehow opens up a channel for me to actually hear from my inner brain so you know maybe tapping into a comment that i heard on a podcast once or a book a paragraph of a book i read 
or a scripture. I feel like when I'm writing, I get ideas that I cannot even believe sometimes how brilliant they are. And then I remember that I heard that somewhere, but I wouldn't have remembered it otherwise. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Perry Marshall. <laughs> Perry and I are friends. I love Perry and I've got his book right over here. Yeah, he just came out with a book called Memos from the Head Office. And I actually was at one of his seminars or whatever. And he was sharing how, so he actually like got an academic published article for the 80-20 principle, like in Italy and all of that. And he actually, in his journaling practice, like wrote down verbatim 80-20 academic article coming out published. You're going to be published, like all this stuff. And he actually like read it and he's like, this happened. I don't know what the timeline was, but let's just say for a sake of examples, like six months or a year before um, it was even on the radar. And so he actually has gotten a lot of insights and he has a whole, you know, this new book that he just came out with is, uh, is probably worth dropping in the show notes, Seth. I absolutely agree. Memos from the head office. I, I've got stories of my own like that as well, including the time I tried to invest in a deal and I got a fax. I kid you not, a fax from somebody advertising something that made me want to call the number a fax. I kid you not. And I called the guy and he turned out he knew the guy I was going to invest with that day. And he, he told me he was a scam artist. Really? And, and I found out later he was a scammer. It was true. He was a scammer. Cause I called the guy before I wired him the money. I said, Hey, one more question. And I asked him and he practically hung up on me because it was true. Can you imagine that? Talk about a memo from the head office, but Perry's book, I'm looking at it here is I'm guessing it's about 190 pages, just shy of two. I think it's just shy of 200 pages and it's full of stories like that that are absolutely impossible to explain apart from supernatural intervention. I got to check that out. That sounds fascinating. And what's really interesting about Perry's world is that he's not exclusively Christian. Like it's, there's a ton of, like I've been to memos of the head office and it was really fascinating because you know, you have people that are getting memos from the head office that have like no grid for God or like, you know, or completely agnostic or whatever. And um, they go to these things and they get radically like touched and they get like life altering words from the head office. You know, what's amazing about that is God actually cares about everybody. He cares about people. He cares about our civilization being better. He cares about, I mean, I believe he probably gave Elon Musk his ideas Uh, even if Elon Musk has no regard for him from what I've heard. It makes sense because he cares. He really does. Yeah, he does. Yeah. You know, Paul, just turn a little bit, pivot into a different thing. Before we started recording here, you mentioned something about how you're using real estate to fight human trafficking. That sounds really interesting. How, How are you doing that? Like, what is the connection there and how can real estate be used to end that? About six years ago, someone put in my hands a copy of a documentary called Nefarious from Exodus Cry, and it shocked me. And what I learned was that human trafficking is a reality, a horrible reality in our world today. Did you know if you took the record profits, not the average, the record profits from General Motors, Nike, Starbucks, and Apple, Combine the record profits together, triple that number. That's the approximate revenue they believe is generated by human trafficking every year. 
So I thought about it and I thought, man, if I was alive in the 1800s, I'd want to believe I would be an abolitionist fighting against slavery like William Wilberforce. And I'd want to believe if I was an adult in the 1960s, I would have been fighting for civil rights. And while this is a civil right, it is slavery, and it's happening right under our nose. And so our company, Wellings Capital, does our very best to vet the best operators to give people an easy on-ramp into commercial real estate investing. Well, we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could vet the best nonprofits and other organizations who are effectively fighting human trafficking? And so we are doing that right now. In fact, I've got an interview with a guy today uh, about this, and we're vetting these organizations. And our goal is in a very short time to be able to tell investors, hey, you invested with us and we're taking money out of our pocket from your investment to invest to free one slave. And we hope to be calling you within three to six months with the story of the raid that freed a slave and what's her status right now, typically in Cambodia or Thailand or Belize or wherever. And then we're going to give our investors a chance to get more involved if they choose to. It's awesome. Yeah, isn't a lot of that human trafficking happening like in the U.S.? Yeah, it really is. I don't know. I mean, I don't fully grasp all of that, but from what I know of it, I mean, it's just like, it's some sick stuff. I mean, just talk about like the rottenest parts of humanity and evil inflicted upon each other. It's just, it's messed up. You know, I don't, I don't get how anybody is involved with that and in any way can live with themselves, but I, I anything, know anything that can be done to like fight that is worthwhile. I think it's absolutely true. I've seen the devastating effects firsthand of People in my family who had one or two incidents in their past and just the years and even decades, it's caused of devastation in their lives. Some of these people, including a girl I heard about the other day who was 17, was, I don't even want to say the words on the show, but she had over a hundred incidents a day, a day for years, she claims. And she was rescued from New York City. It's just unimaginable, the torment and, and, and what she's going to need to heal. You know, it's really inspirational to hear how you've been able to use your path in business and in real estate to make a, a, a social impact like that. Because, you know, for me, I guess, and it, maybe it's a matter of the season that I'm in or what have you, but it's tough because you see a lot of injustice in the world and it's really easy to just kind of default to, I don't have any control over these things. I can't really do anything. But I always tell myself in those moments, well, if I double down and I become ultra successful financially, then I'll be in a position where I can actually do something about some of this catastrophe and, and evil things that happen in the world. And it's just really inspirational, this side of the conversation, to see that you actually have done that. And like, it's, it's pretty awesome. So thank you for what you're doing and thanks for sharing. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's very kind of you. I would say that everybody can get involved at some level in some way, wherever they are. I remember talking to my dad about that once, <laughs> just this idea of if I want to make an impact on the world, if I want my business to be more about me just making money and, you know, then I live my life and I die and it's all over. 
Like, if I really want to make that impact, one way to think of that is, well, someday in the future, when I have money, when I've gotten there, then I'll start going nuts and doing that. My dad was just encouraging me to like, no, like do it now and do it then. Do it before you're ready. Like, make sure you go out of your way to make a difference for every day that you're alive. Like, any day could be your last. So, like, don't let your life end without doing something meaningful like that. And it's not really that hard. I mean, there's all kinds of organizations, world vision, compassion. You can sponsor kids. It's not so much about ending human trafficking, but just about taking people in hopeless situations and giving them a chance. And it's it's not that expensive. I mean, it's kind of amazing what you can do to change a life through just giving, you know, 40 bucks or less per month to that kind of cause. So, but yeah, I mean, pick something and make a difference and don't wait on it. Yeah, I agree. That's a good word right there. So I know, you know, something that a lot of real estate investors are going to have to be thinking about, and probably they always did, but even more so now with a lot of money being pumped into the the system from the government is inflation. How do you, you use real estate as a hedge against inflation? Or what, what's just the general principle that you adhere to in terms of making sure that your money is protected through real estate? Yeah. You know, um, I heard for years that real estate was a great inflation hedge, but I really didn't think it through uh, until it started hitting again recently. This is a $10 trillion bill from Zimbabwe. And I don't think the United States is going to go into that type of hyperinflation. I think there's a lot of reasons we won't. But obviously, inflation is heating up. And a lot of us believe it's worse than the government is reporting. It's an amazing moment in history, though, guys. I mean, when I was a kid, I remember gas lines in the 70s and grandparents and neighbors having their savings account and pensions, you know, ravaged. Somebody who got a pension check that would cover two months rent, now it only covers half a month. And that was real. Well, at the same time as inflation in the late 70s and through the 70s and into the 80s, interest rates were often very, very high to match. And that was done intentionally. Well, we're in a time where inflation is heating up, but the Fed and the government are boxed in to a corner where they can't raise interest rates very high. And so interest rates are at, you know, roughly a 5,000-year low. Yep, there's actually studies on this. 5,000-year low, but inflation is heating up. And so the delta, you know, the opportunity to buy 10 or 12 or even 30-year fixed debt at like 3% for a commercial loan right now for like a mobile home park we just invested in, and then see inflation increase rents and therefore revenue over the next decade or two or three, it's creating a huge potential as a hedge against inflation and a huge potential to actually increase wealth and to at least keep up or beat inflation along the way. Yeah, basically, you just don't want to hold too much cash, right? That's kind of the bottom line is it's going to be rapidly losing value as long as it's in cash form versus real estate or something else that's going up in value to beat inflation. That's right. But the problem is, as we all know, it's really, really hard to find deals that make sense right now with, you know, in multifamily with people paying 10, 20, even 30% more than the, you know, the sensible value of an asset residential single family, not much better. And so we've got to really figure out a way or partner with people who have an inside track on deals 
that have a lot of meat on the bone, a lot of value add left in them, or it's going to be really, really tough to make a profit unless inflation does keep up and inflates away the risk, if you will, which is possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I'm super thankful for the the land flipping business. I hear from my wholesaler friends that do like houses and I hear from people from a number of different types of strategies and what have you that it's just really, really, really tough. But in land, I'm sure in some areas, some counties, you know, competition might be increasing or whatever, but it's still very predictable and very feasible to get deals. Property does take a little bit longer to sell, but uh, compared to, to, you know, some other asset classes, but it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I don't think there's a better time I've ever seen to be in the land business because, you know, you've still got people who are sitting on inherited land or whatever uh, that they, you know, it's just a pain to them and they, they just love to get rid of it. At the same time, the demand for semi-rural and rural land is just off the charts. So what a great time to be in the land business. Yeah, it's really interesting because my primary market is is Florida and you just described like to the T the exact situation of the Florida market. You have a bunch of people that have land out there or have even property out there that was a secondary home or, you know, was intended for that, but never, you know, life got in the way and, and they're just wanting to get rid of it. But at the same time, you have this huge influx of people moving there. So it's just like this weird discrepancy that um, is pretty easy to capitalize on. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, I don't know if you fancy yourself an expert who makes predictions about market trends and that kind of stuff, but like, do you think it's going to get back to normal or whatever that is anytime soon? Or do you think this is going to continue throughout 2022? Or I don't know, do you have any insights on the next year or two on where things are going? Yeah. You know, I, I was reading Howard uh, Marks, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side, and also some stuff from Buffett. And, you know, they refuse to make predictions, but they actually say it's more important to behave rationally for where you can see that you are in the cycle. So that's my first goal is just to behave rationally for where we are or where we seem to be in the cycle. That said, I don't necessarily think things are going to go back to normal anytime soon. You know, I I was actually sitting in an airport in Belize, a tiny little airport, getting ready to go to the real estate guys summit on sand recently. And the guy sitting next to me, I could just tell he looked smart or successful or something. So I started talking to him. It turned out it was Doug Duncan, the chief economist of Fannie Mae. And I said, what do you really believe? Come on. <laughs> he said, I really believe what I published that really, that uh, we're going to see inflation of five and a half percent or so this year and back down to like 3.8% next year. And I said, why do you think so low? And he's like, Paul, he actually didn't say Paul. He didn't know my name. He said, 3.8 is really, really high. And I said, really? He said, yeah, that's double the Fed's target, he reminded me, you know, of 1.9% or so. He said, 3.8 is double. He said, that's really, really high. And I think that's where it'll go. And he gave me all these reasons. But he did say that the housing market 
since 2014, he's been crying out that there was a massive housing shortage and a growing discrepancy between the number of people wanting to buy houses and the actual number of houses. And that would include multifamily and all that as well. And so he said he thinks the building boom is going to go on for years, which makes me think that the inflated prices of lumber and other construction materials and construction labor and all that is going to continue for years as well. Yeah. I got a buddy who works kind of more in the Wall Street world, and he has his uh, ear to the ground of what's going on. He's kind of on the forefront of, you know, the moving trends. I mean, like that's what he gets paid to do is like figure out where to make people money and all that. And uh, he says something really similar. He says, there are some things that could sideswipe what his prediction is, but he, by and large, he thinks that the data is showing that we actually are going to be doing well for like the next seven to eight plus years. There might be like a reckoning that happens. History might be repeating itself. We might be sitting in a situation with COVID where it's parallel to the Spanish flu or whatever. And we had the roaring 20s and then we had the Great Depression in 1928. We might be. Well, it is the roaring 20s again, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that might be the situation where. Is, <laughs> who knows, though? Who knows? Do you ever find it frustrating, Paul, when like you got to relearn the rules? I find it frustrating sometimes because when I first jumped into real estate, seriously, it was the 2008 crash. And that was kind of the world I got to know originally where everything is cheap. You know, you can't sell real estate. It's hard. And now it's like the total opposite. And you got to just kind of relearn what normal is and what normal prices are and competition and all this stuff. Given how much you've seen in your history, is it easy for you to see the opportunity when things change? Or do you kind of get frustrated where you're like, ah, oh, man, like I got to relearn all this stuff all over again. What's your thought process there? Well, you know, I think that that has been true overall for me over the last, you know, 20 years or so, or actually I could even say 29 years of being an entrepreneur. But actually, I think we've tapped into a formula that has worked really, really well. And I feel like it is sort of recession resistant. My company is actually investing with companies who have a long track record, as in before the Great Recession, of finding mom and pop deals. It's sort of like what you're doing with land, you know, finding mom and pop owned deals where the current owner doesn't have the desire or the knowledge or the resources to improve the income and therefore significantly improve the value. And of course, with commercial real estate, the value is not based on emotions. It's based on math. It's based on a simple formula, which is sort of like the P-E ratio in stocks. It's the value or the value change is the net operating income divided by the rate of return. So the net income divided by the cap rate. And therefore, because it's based on math, these operators are really skilled at finding opportunities where the net operating income is significantly under what it could be. Sort of like what Warren Buffett saw in Apple when it was trading for $28 a share and he started snatching it in mass in 2015, I believe, even though he didn't like investing in technology and he made a fortune for his investors. 
Well, we're doing something a little similar. We see we're, we're investing with these operators who are able to see intrinsic value where other people would just see a worn out looking mobile home park. Because of that, we think we've tapped into something that is going to do well in almost any economic cycle. For that reason, I think that's, <laughs> I can tell you pretty confidently, that's the track I plan to stay on for the rest of the foreseeable future. Gotcha. It's a good place to be. Yeah. So I know we haven't gotten into a lot of the nitty gritty of your past, like all the different projects. I'm sure we could talk for several hours about all that stuff. But when you look at everything you've done and everything you've seen, does anything stand out to you is like, I never should have done that. Like that was a bad idea. <laughs> I shouldn't have gone down that road. And if so, what would that be and why? How many hours do we have again? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do a part two on that. <laughs> Yeah, how to lose money again and again with Paul Moore. Yeah, no, I mean, there were a lot of things like that. A lot of them were based in times when I didn't do thorough due diligence. I, you know, I invested basing on a friend's recommendation who I really trusted, but found out that they didn't do enough due diligence. Or maybe the due diligence was done and somebody just didn't figure out something. Like I mentioned the Bakken oil in North Dakota, you know, listen, the guy we invested with should have been as wealthy as Bill Gates right now. And I mean that literally. He had come up with a way to tap into oil reserves that nobody else had figured out yet. And that's a fact. I mean, I have, I have a petroleum engineering degree. It doesn't mean I could correctly evaluate that, but that was my original degree. And I, I understood what they were talking about. It made total sense. He hit six out of six oil wells, these massive untapped oil reserves, six out of six with some of the money a bunch of us put up. And he never produced a gallon, you know, a gallon of oil because it turned to tar somehow in the pipe, you know, in the 10,500 feet between below ground and the surface. So you never know. The due diligence was right on that one and it just didn't work out. It had to be viewed as a speculation, no matter how certain it looked. And geologists to this day say he hit it right on the nose. He did come up with some special way of doing it. So sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's just the fact that you're out of your game. You know, I used to try to talk to investors like these private equity firms. I mean, this was like years and years ago, building multifamily in North Dakota over a decade ago. And they'd say, well, we're not into multifamily. Yeah, but can't you see this opportunity? Yeah, but we don't, that's just not something we know about. We like to stay in our lane. Well, here I am 11 years later. Guys, I so believe in that. I know a guy right now doing an Airbnb play. He's making a killing. He wanted me to invest with him. I'm like, I believe you, but I just don't know much about that. And I don't want to go have to learn. You know, people need to stay in their lane. But again, going back to my question in the beginning of our conversation or near the beginning of our conversation, if you take that approach, you are inherently missing opportunity. Yes. I mean, I guess if your current opportunity is good enough to like make it worthwhile to double down and stay focused on that, then cool. But for a lot of people that are just getting started in their pursuit of financial freedom or what have you, they're just starting their real estate journey or investing journey, financial education, I mean, really... Uh, for those in the beginning stages, to some degree, like it's like this catch 22 thing, like stay focused and stay in your lane. But on the other side, you also have to be exposed to know what your one thing is or should be, you know? 
I totally agree. And the FOMO thing has been a plague for me since high school, the fear of missing out. Like uh, I remember in high school, like this 12 string guitar, I've got to have that one. I can't wait till another one comes along, you know? And I remember blowing my whole summer savings to buy that 12 string guitar. And I, you know, it's been a continual problem for me. And I've had to learn to be disciplined. And one of the ways I did that was I brought on a business partner who was almost the extreme opposite for me. He's very unemotional. He's very rational. He actually, it, he bugs me. And I say that with the dearest respect for him because I'll go in with, you won't believe what I found. He'll be like, yeah, I will. I'm like, okay, <laughs> thanks. You know, took the wind out of my sails. But it's really good for me because by submitting to him and by both of us mutually submitting to each other, it saves a lot of rabbit trails that I would be tempted to run down. And he also is pulled into a lot of things that are things that he would not have ever looked at. Like he didn't want to look at self-storage and mobile home parks when we were deeply entrenched in multifamily for years. But you know what? That's been the best thing we ever did. Yeah, so it seems like you just have to ride that tension where it's like, I like that you have a partner that can come from the other side because then you you can bring the new ideas and the opportunity and and then he can shut down 90% of them and then ride the ones that are worth riding. You know, I like that. But when you don't have a partner like that, it can be pretty hard to navigate those waters. I agree. You know, when I was solo, I actually, and, and sometimes I partnered with people who have my exact same personality. It was a lot harder. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Well, just looking at the clock here, why don't we uh, navigate to our final three questions here? So, Paul, what we do here is at the end of a lot of our interviews like this, we kind of go one step further beyond just real estate stuff and ask three a little bit deeper questions about you and just how you think, how you operate. Just kind of gives us some more insight into your brain. Awesome. So the first question is, what is your biggest fear? Hmm. So amazingly, Seth, when I had my back up against the wall and had two and a half million dollars in debt, I don't remember losing a bit of sleep over that. But I have lost sleep over the way my wife and I treat each other. And I, I fear that I'll never be the husband and father that I know I'm called to be. I've seen clearly what that looks like. I saw it in my dad. I've seen it in others. And I, I'm jealous for that. And I, I fear that, you know, that whether it's through, you know, working too many hours, being distracted, chasing shiny objects in my personal life, whatever it is. I fear that at the end of my life, I will have not made the deep imprint on them, as is evidenced by how their, hopefully their adult kids are going, how they're doing. I, I fear that I won't have been all I should have been in that realm. And I think that's, uh, I think that's my biggest fear. I guess second to that would be a similar thought. And that would be that when I leave this earth, I won't have left a history-making imprint on it. Even if it's only with a handful of people, I want to make a difference in people's lives. Yeah. And difference meaning what exactly? Like, um, what would you consider a good enough difference? 
Yeah, so I just uh, started a mentoring role at my church with six or seven other leaders. So, like, I'm going to be mentoring them. They're, you know, millennials, which I love, and they're they're actually leaders of small groups, and those groups typically have anywhere from six to 12 or 15 people in them. And so, like, I want to leave a deep impression on them. I want to be, you know, somebody who role models being kind to the waiter or waitress, having a smile on my face when the bank account is almost empty. And not that that's happening regularly, but it could. You know, I'm looking at a country that's not the same country I grew up in, guys. I don't know what's going to happen next, but it doesn't look super positive from my point of view. And I want to be somebody who boldly and bravely stands up for what I believe and doesn't collapse in that. I just saw an amazing movie called Anthropoid. It's not well known. It should be. It's the story of some heroes in the Czech Republic who stood up against Hitler. In the movie, the most poignant moment was when they quoted uh, Shakespeare, I believe, who was quoting Julius Caesar saying, a coward dies a thousand deaths, a hero or a brave man dies but once. Yeah, I know what you mean. I would bet money that Paul's an Enneagram type three. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My uh, business partner in my former business in the staffing company, and he's actually involved in our company, Wellings Capital now, he's an Enneagram three. I have a very good friend who's an Enneagram three, but I can't remember if I'm a six or seven. I think I'm a seven wing six, if that helps. Yeah, it's just interesting the way you're talking this. It's like you're you're reading my heart. You know, a lot of the, the my internal dialogue and the things that I think about and value, I have the same fears. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Paul, what is something that you're most proud of? Um, you know, it's so funny how similar this is gonna be to the first question and my answer, I guess. And that is that even though my wife and I made a lot of mistakes in our marriage over 34 years, we have a strong marriage. And even though we made a lot of mistakes in child raising over 28 years, 28 down to 16, four kids, they're all doing well. And so I'm really proud of those things. And even though my kids can readily tell me some of the mistakes we all made, me really when they were younger we still have a great relationship and i just got the phone with a a friend a few hours ago who is agonizing and i would have said that his wife and he are better parents than us but for some reason their kids are really really struggling in ways that i don't understand and um so i guess that would be it cool yeah that's something to be proud of for sure so what is the most important lesson you've ever learned I think from a business point of view, it's what I said earlier. I'm going to go back and highlight again, and that is the difference between investing and speculating and the fact that true investing should not be entrepreneurial. It should be more on the boring side. And I think that's most important for me because, and there's so many others, of course, but that one just stands out because it has made a major difference in my investing and in my finances. And since I do a lot of podcasts, a lot of blogging, hopefully it's helped a few other people along the way as well. I'll tell you, I learned that 
mainly from Warren Buffett. I'm actually writing a book called Warren Buffett's Rules for Real Estate Investors. And uh, I learned that concept mainly from him. You know, that's interesting because you never really know the future. Even when you've done all your due diligence and you know everything front and back, you're never a hundred percent. So like, where do you think the line is between, okay, you're officially speculating now. How would you define that? If things go south, you could literally lose your money. Okay, sure. I get that that's true. I get that Apple could go bankrupt tomorrow. Uh, you know, it probably won't, but General Motors, you know, okay, that's one aspect of it. But I have another one that I think is a little easier to get my arms around. And, and this is a little bit of a long answer, but what is true wealth? Well, true wealth is having assets that produce income. And if you have assets that produce income in a reliable way and you don't over leverage them, then you have true wealth. Well, I would say that the line between speculating investing is just as simple as does it produce reliable, predictable cash flow or not? Bitcoin, I'm not against it at all. I have some, but Bitcoin doesn't produce any reliable, uh, predictable income. It doesn't have any income at all unless you invest it in those certain type of ways where it somehow produces interest. So I would say that that's where my speculation line is. And that's why I love commercial real estate and real estate in general. Cool. Well, Paul, again, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's been awesome to talk to you and get to know you a little bit better. Hopefully we can connect at some point in the future. Again, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? What should they do? Yeah, they can go to wellingscapital.com. And I spent years, guys, trying to figure out how to get from residential into commercial real estate. And so now I created a 60-page guide for people who want to do the same. You can get that at wellingscapital.com slash resources. We're going to include uh, links to that in Paul's website and his podcast and his books and a lot of other stuff we talked about in this conversation at uh, retipster.com forward slash 111 or 111 because this is episode 111. So, Paul, thanks again. Appreciate you. And uh, I wish you all the best with the stuff you're working on. And hopefully our audience will become new raving fans of all the stuff you got. Awesome. Guys, you know, it was really an honor to be here. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Jaron. All right, folks, there you have it. That was our interview with Paul Moore. Did you have any uh, closing thoughts on that, Jaron? You know, to be honest, when I read the bio coming into the podcast today, I was like, ah, oh, this is going to be like just another one of those <laughs> kind of run-of-the-mill, large apartment syndication kind of guys. But he was a breath of fresh air for sure. Yeah, it seems like there were a lot of different directions we could have gone with that. We didn't even really get much into the uh land investing stuff that he or his uh, son had did because there was just a lot of ground to cover there. But sounds like the guy's a wealth of information and hopefully I can, well, we can stay in touch with him in the future. Yeah. You want to do one of our uh, closing questions here? Let's do it. So what's something that people think make them look cool, but actually makes them look ridiculous? I guess this is probably like a fashion trend thing. Maybe, but maybe there's, maybe hmm. it's not limited to that. Yeah, I don't know. My my brain just went to like being braggadocious or being yeah. like, that's where my brain went. Because you run into it a lot in the real estate world where people are just like, yeah, I'm the greatest thing ever. And they, I think they do it to try and like arise 
their level of the pecking order or whatever. But to me, and maybe I'm just weird and I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not a part of that pecking order or whatever. I just don't operate in it. But to me, that's, uh, very, it's just like, I see what they're trying to do. And I'm just like, dude, like, just <laughs> yeah. like, calm down. <laughs> yeah. I I have to agree with that. There, I don't know if it's like, um, like an insecurity thing. Like I better really come out quick and prove how awesome I am or people are going to dismiss me or I don't, I don't know what the thought process is or or if it's like I just want to feel and look amazing and so I'm going to find anything I can and just make myself look as good as I can there's a book Lucas Hall recommended it to us way back when we interviewed him a book called how to lie with statistics it's basically hmm. about how like you can make anything sound amazing if you just focus in on like one metric and ignore the rest for example, a person could say, I've done like 20,000 deals or something, but they're, you know, they've lost money on all of them, you know? So let's not talk about that. Let's just talk about the number that sounds good. Yeah. But I know there's that. And even when it's not about numbers, but just kind of like the, the arrogant tone or just trying to come across as like, I'm amazing. Like you're lucky you're getting to talk to me right now. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. There is a lot of that in the real estate world. I don't know what fuels it, man. Cause it's like, I don't know, maybe they don't really have high self-esteem, so they're trying to overcompensate or something. I don't know. I've just never understood it. Like I, I have like vivid memories of getting started in real estate and talking to other investors and them like verbally walking all over me or like putting me down or whatever, again, mm -hmm. in the whole like pecking order thing. And I just like never played the game and just like, I don't know what fuels it. I mean, I guess it's kind of the same question, like what fuels bullying, right? It's kind of a similar yeah. energy or vibe, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I feel that too. Like I don't really know how much it matters, what people think about, I don't know, money I've made on a deal or like how many deals I've done or whatever. I mean, whatever you want to tie your value to. So like sometimes I feel like I need to like say something to prove that just to like earn reputation points in people's brains and maybe that's complete illogical thinking but i mean i'll, I'll be the first to admit like I, I get the pressure i understand why people do it but well i mean i, I think it depends because if people there is a degree where you have to let people know that you know what you're talking about and that you're reliable and that you have a track record yeah. but you don't have to do it in a way where i'm like i'm the like center of attention and i'm the greatest thing ever and i'm better than you and it's almost like some of the conversations is like they're sizing you up like, yeah. How many deals have you done? Like, I remember going to some conferences with you and the, some of the conversations that I'd be having are like weird. They're just like, they, what do you, what investing do you do? How much money do you make? How many deals are you doing? I'm like, dude, my favorite color is blue. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. I, I like long walks on the beach. Like let's get to know each other before we jump into all that. Yeah. I almost feel like it takes pressure off just mentally for me. If I can just get it out there that like, I'm not the best you're probably better than me or like, let's just frame it up that way. So we can just establish that. Like I, I can <laughs> stop like comparing on. myself to you immediately. And, you know, maybe it'll come out at some point that, you know, maybe I've done something that impresses them and it's just kind of like a nice little surprise, but I, I don't like to like lead with that. Sometimes I, I feel like I have to, and I don't know if that's flawed thinking or if that, kind of like what you're saying, like, I think there is a point where you need to, you know, establish that you are credible on some level, but I think beyond that, it's kind of just like, flexing your muscle and trying to like feel more special than you are or something. It's something that 
kind of bugs me. And I, I don't fully have it figured out in my own mind, but I know when I see it and I, I don't love it when I see that. These days, whenever I run into it, I'll just like egg them on. So if they like start talking about like they start, I'm like, oh my gosh, bro, you did that? You're so amazing. Like, <laughs> my gosh, that's so awesome. You know, and like I just be like super over the top. And uh, I don't know if they get that I've been over the top, but um, it's fun in my head. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I hear you, man. So I guess that wraps it up then. If you guys want to check out the show notes again, retipster.com forward slash 111. And you can see a lot of notes and links and stuff uh, to the stuff we talked about. And again, if you guys are listening on your phones, feel free to take out your phones and text the word free, F-R-E-E, to the number 33777. You can stay up to date on all the stuff we got going on at Tipster. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.